contrast with the status of the Gentile. Okay, so if you got your Bible, we just read this earlier, but let me reread it. Ephesians 2, verse 12, in particular, well, 11, 12, he says, remember that in time past, right, you were Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, I want you to recognize that unbelieving Gentiles are described as non-citizens of Israel and foreigners from the covenants. Therefore, because they're non-citizens of Israel and foreigners from the covenants, then they are, as a result of that, without God and without hope. All right, now contrast that with Romans 9. Look at Romans 9. Let's read verses 3, 4, and 5. He says, Paul says this, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. All right, Paul's talking about his burden for the Jewish nation, his desire that they trust in Christ. But then he describes that Jewish nation. Verse 4 and 5, he says, Who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption and glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ, that is the Messiah, came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. In other words, notice, and, and we could really spend a long time with this, but I simply want you to see the privileged status of Israel versus the uh, status of an unsaved Gentile that Paul wants us to understand in Ephesians chapter 2. So what this means, let me just kind of unpack it briefly, but to be a non-citizen or a foreigner to the covenants of Israel, what that meant was for an unsaved Gentile, an unbelieving Gentile, what that means is that most Gentiles were not ethnically, culturally, geographically, or politically associated with Israel in any way. Right? The majority of the Gentile nations were not associated with Israel in any of these ways, ethnically, culturally, geographically, politically, and therefore they were outside of the sphere of God's blessing upon Israel. To put it another way, Gentiles were non-recipients and non-participants in God's covenants with Israel. Therefore, they were not firsthand eyewitnesses of God's revelation of himself throughout Israeli history nor had they received the promises that God made about the future. In other words, the privilege of Israel, that is even an unsaved Israeli in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the privilege of Israel is found primarily in that they are first-hand recipients of God's truth, his revelation, his law. Also, they are participants, eyewitnesses in what God is doing throughout Israeli history. Now, I don't know about you, but I love to ponder this. This is good meditation material. Just to sit back and think, I love to try and recreate what life would have been like for an Old Testament Israeli. Just make yourself, you know, whether you want to place yourself as like David or Solomon or, you know, one of these great characters of the Old Testament or just an average Jew, right? Think of Ornan the Jebusite, maybe, who's not even ethnically Jewish, but he's living in Jerusalem. And David will come and purchase the, you know, the threshing floor from him and build the temple there. Or just fill in the, the blank. Pl- try to place yourself back at, in an Old Testament Jewish context and recognize the privileged status that you enjoyed. 
First, you had the temple or tabernacle, depending on which era of history you lived in. You had the tabernacle or temple of God, the direct presence of God in your midst. You could go whenever you wanted, but you were commanded three times a year to go to appear before God. And when you go before God, you would witness the presence, the Shekinah glory of God hovering over the tabernacle or temple. You would come to offer a sacrifice. You would hear the priests utter the benediction, the blessing over the people. You would hear prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, fill in the blank. Guys that would stand forth and herald forth God's truth. They would say, thus says Yahweh, and they would give you the truth of your God who's speaking. You could go to the tabernacle temple. You could read the history of what God has done, the commandments that God has given. Or depending on what era of history you were in, maybe you're one of the Jews that is hiding behind the wall in ancient Jerusalem and there's this massive Assyrian army that has just massed itself against the walls of the city and you're waiting for the destruction of the city only to wake up one morning because your king, a godly guy by the name of Hezekiah, went and he prayed and he asked God for deliverance. You wake up the next morning and the Assyrian army is all dead because God wiped them out overnight with an angel. That's cool. I mean, imagine that if you would, I mean, just place yourself in any point of Israeli history. What is the privilege of being a Jew? You are a firsthand eyewitness of what God is doing, how he's making promises. He's giving commandments, but he's keeping those promises. And he is, you know, he goes out as the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaot, the Lord of hosts. He leads Israeli army. What, maybe you're David. Maybe you're one of those dudes that's you know, underneath the jurisdiction of David. And David is praying for God to give guidance in this military conflict. And so he says, God, what are we going to do? And God says, no problem. When you hear the sound of God moving, right? And it's this idea, because he actually talks about the, the mulberry trees. You remember this part? Where it's like they're shaken. And he says, it's like the idea of the spirit of God is moving through the trees. He says, that's your moment of attack. And David says, all right, I mean, God's the one in charge. Let's just do it God's way. Guess what happens? They win. I mean, what, what would it have been like to have been the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant as you're marching around the city of Jericho? And then all of a sudden they say, stop, everybody scream to the top of your lungs. And then the walls fall down, right? I mean, the whole point is the Jews were incredibly blessed and a privileged nation because they were receiving the, the, the truth of God. They were eyewitnesses of what God was doing. But not only that, they also had promises of not only what God you know, was doing now and, and witnessing that, but they had promises of what God was going to do in the future. One of the things that Paul describes here in Ephesians chapter 2 is that the Gentiles are without is that they are without hope. This is probably a direct reference to the messianic hope. Again, if you have your, I, I kind of lost the spot here, but I'll be back. But if you had your finger there in Romans chapter 9, notice how it describes again in verses 4 and 5 of Romans chapter 9. He says, describing the Israelites, he says, whom pertains the adoption, that is, they are the special adopted nation, God's particular people, the glory, that's the Shekinah glory cloud that they would have witnessed. They would have followed through the wilderness. They would have witnessed above the, uh, the tabernacle, etc., the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, that's the idea of the priesthood and the tabernacle temple. But then he says, and the promises. See that last thing in verse four? The promises. Whose are the fathers and of whom concerning the flesh Christ came? What promises is he, is he talking about? Well, particularly he's talking about the promise of a coming savior. 
a promise of a coming Savior. The idea is that God gave a series of promises. Now, I'm not going to get lost in this. I just had a block class uh, where we talked about Old Testament messianic prophecy. All right? I've got about 35 hours of instruction that I could pause on right here. (laughs) I'm going to condense it into 30 seconds, so you're welcome. But... Messianic hope. What is it? God, and we could start because traditionally everyone recognizes the first promise of the coming Messiah, Genesis 3.15, Proto-Evangelium it's called, right? The first declaration of the gospel that God is going to send forth a deliverer who will conquer the serpent. He will conquer sin and death. And that promise, of course, is you trace that through the scripture and that promise becomes elaborate. Every generation, every prophet gets a new promise about this coming deliverer. We learn that he'll be of the seed of Abraham, of the seed of Isaac, of the seed of Jacob, of the seed of Judah. And then from Judah, you have the seed of David. And then from David, we can trace his lineage. And then it describes us for us in Isaiah and Jeremiah. He'll be a king, the greatest king. He'll be ruling over a jurisdiction that is the globe, the entire world will be beneath his righteous rule. He, he will be a king, according to Isaiah 11, that is, is flawless in his wisdom. He cannot make a mistake. He's a king who cannot lose a battle. He's a king who will always be just. But more than a king, he's also a prophet. Deuteronomy 18 says he'll be a prophet like unto Moses. He'll be better than even the most revered prophet in all of Hebrew history. He will be better than Moses. We'll see that he's not only a prophet and a king, but he will be a priest. He'll be the ultimate high priest. He himself will be the sacrifice, the means by which we are right with God. We could go on and on, dozens of promises in the Old Testament. But what you have as an Old Testament Jew is you have a messianic hope. You have promise after promise after promise. As generation after generation after generation goes and transpires, you gain a collection of promises that gives you a hope for the future, an anticipation, an expectation of where is history heading? How are we going to get there? And it's all about this coming Messiah. He will come and he will fix it all. I think it's so profound that when we study this idea, notice, for instance, the sermons of Paul in the book of Acts. We won't go there for a second time, but just recall with me. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching a sermon in Antioch, Pisidia, And his whole sermon is centered around this idea. He lists the Old Testament promises of the coming Messiah. Then he says, they're fulfilled. He gives a promise fulfillment type of sermon. He says, to you, God made these promises. He's speaking to a Jewish audience in the synagogue. He's saying, to you, God made these promises, and he has fulfilled them in Christ. And he announces the coming of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes on to to describe how he is the fulfillment of all Messianic hope. We'll contrast that with the way he preaches to Gentiles. He doesn't have a promise fulfillment sort of format in his sermons to Gentiles. We see, we'll see it, for instance, we see it several places, but Acts 14, Acts 17, a couple of places where Paul is preaching to a Gentile audience, he doesn't give them a promise fulfillment sort of format. Why? Because they didn't have those promises. The reality is, before becoming Christians, the average Gentile would probably have been unfamiliar with the word Messiah. They may not have ever even heard the word, or if they heard it, they wouldn't have known what it meant. The idea is that they would have been unfamiliar with this word, and thus without anticipation of his coming. They weren't looking for his arrival. They weren't waiting for this arrival. So they were ill-equipped to face life. They did not have the hope 
that the, the messianic hope brings. Because contrast that with the Jewish nation. The messianic hope is what equipped Israel to endure difficult times. We could go on and on about this. But because they had the promise of a personal resurrection, the participation in a coming glorious messianic age, places like Isaiah 2, and I just put etc. because I'd have about four more slides of Old Testament quotations, passages, you know, where this is a big promise. But Isaiah 2 is a good place to just go and kind of, you know, summarize on one passage. This coming messianic age of perfect peace and prosperity that they were looking forward to. They had that. And we can see how that not only helped the nation at large have an identity and a purpose and a direction, but even individuals. Think with me of Hannah. Who's Hannah? Well, not Hannah Google, but the other Hannah. The Hannah in the Old Testament who was childless. Remember this? She goes to the tabernacle and she prays for God to work, but she has a place to go, someone to consult. She receives a word from the high priest. What happens next? She conceives. She gives forth, to, uh, you know, birth to a son, names him Samuel. Then she sings a song of praise in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and she's singing about the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? What gave Hannah, individual woman who couldn't have a child, what gave her hope? The ability to cope and get through life and deal with difficult circumstances. It was the reality that there's, there's a Messiah coming, and he's going to fix everything. That God is the, the God who is able to make barren women sing with joy at childbirth. Only God can do that. Well, that got her through hard times. But what if you're a Gentile and you don't have the word of God? You don't even know what the word Messiah means. Well, again, that's what Paul is pointing their, them to. His readers, his audience, he's saying, look to your past. Look at what you once were. Gentiles not only did not possess Messianic hope, but they also participated in ancient paganism that could offer no hope. We've talked about this many times, so I can make a real quick work of it. But recall this, that in the ancient Greco-Roman world was religiously pluralistic. It was animistic. They believed in spirits behind every rock and tree and wind and everything. They believed in multiple gods and spirits on multiple levels. These beings were constantly placated because even a good god or a spirit, one that was perceived to be normally good, still could become enraged and could trouble you and ruin your life. And you wouldn't even know why. We talked about this before, but because of that sort of religious background, the people that Paul is writing to in the book of Ephesians would exhaust themselves to appease these gods without any sense of love or loyalty to those gods. In fact, I got time. Let me just read that passage for you in Galatians chapter 4. I think it's so fascinating. This is what's dangerous when I, when I got time, right? Because <laughs> we can just uh, go to passage after passage, connect thought after thought, but Galatians 4 writes this, you know, Paul writes this concept really well when he's describing how these Galatian believers were tempted to abandon the gospel of Christ and go back to their paganism or back to or forward to Judaism, which is still the idea that they were having to work and, and you know, the idea of legalism, that's you have to work hard and keep all the laws in order to earn God's favor. And, and you're never quite sure if you earn God's favor. And so it's an exhausting cycle. You're a hamster on a wheel and you're not getting anywhere, but you're exhausting yourself. That's what he says it was like. And he tries to get the Galatians to remember that. Look at verse eight, Galatians four, verse eight. He says, how be it then when you knew not God, you did service unto them, which by nature are no gods. But now, after you have been known, or you have known God, or rather, 
are known of God, how turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and times and years. I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. I think it's so profound what Paul's doing here, but it's really the same sort of thing he's doing in our text in Ephesians chapter 2. He's reminding them of where they came from. And he says, do you remember how you exhausted yourself to, to try and placate these gods that you never knew if they actually were showing you any favor? You had no loyalty, no sense of love to those gods. I mentioned it before. One of these days we'll have to do a snapshot of it. Plutarch, uh, ancient writer, writes of this. He writes an essay known as The Dread of the Gods where he describes what it was like to worship in paganistic polytheism. Multiple gods never quite knowing which one is angry at you. It's exhausting. But Paul says, that's where you came from. And I think it's ironic that even in that polytheistic setting, In our text in Ephesians, he says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's an ironic statement if you know their background. He says you were without God in the world. Well, wait a minute. They had multiple gods. The ancients viewed Israel as being God poor because they only worshiped one God. That was it. All the other nations had multiple gods. But Paul, in his witty sort of irony, says that even they who worshipped all these gods were without God because they did not worship the one true and living God who could offer them hope and deliverance. So notice this remarkable passage. And like I said, I mean, uh, if time allowed, we would just go and just comb through the Old Testament to describe this. I'm trying to give you a snapshot of it. But Paul is saying to these Gentile readers in verse 11 and 12, look backwards and look at where you came from. Do you really want to go back to that? Is that the way you want to live? I love the way he puts it in Romans. Chapter 6, he uses a rhetorical question, same sort of thing. He says, do you remember all that you lived, all, all the sinfulness that you lived in, that you were bound by? He says, what fruit do you have of that life? In other words, look now. What good did that lifestyle of sin and paganism give you? Can you look around and count the blessings that sin has bestowed upon you? No. Sin is an evil, cruel taskmaster that steals all freedom, gives us nothing but bondage and sorrow. And he says, do you want to go back to bondage? He asked them that question in Romans chapter 6. What a profound question. But it's the same thing Paul's trying to get them to see here in the book of Ephesians. Look at what you once were. But then we have the shift. Verse 13. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. As I said earlier, we go from being Gentile outsiders to Christian insiders. Verse 13 that I just read is really the hinge upon which the the rest of this chapter turns. This is the hinge. He's saying, that's what you were, verse 11 and 12, but now this is what you are in Christ. And then he's going to spend the rest of this chapter unpacking this incredibly important, glorious idea. But notice with me the importance of some of the key points here in verse 13. First, notice how he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now, you may be familiar with this, particularly if you're an Old Testament reader. You know your Old Testament to any degree. This will become familiar. 
But the language of being far and near or being at peace with God, that is Levitical talk. Levitical meaning having to do with the Levites, the book of Leviticus, the temple of God, the tabernacle of God. It's language that is describing how we as human beings relate to God, how we come nigh to him, how we have a restored relationship with him, that we are at peace with him rather than being far off, being aliens from God. This idea of being brought near is interesting because if you're studying the book of Leviticus, for instance, and you're studying it particularly in the book of, uh, or in the language of Hebrew, the original language it was written in, the root, the Hebrew root for the word that's translated offering is actually the same root for the verb that means to draw near. And so an offering in Hebrew literally refers to the means by which one draws nigh to God. It's the offering that you bring to come before God and to, to present before God, to be near to God and to be at peace with God. In fact, this concept of being nigh or near unto God is a huge Old Testament concept. We won't go to all these passages, but Israel, as the privileged nation that we just described by, you know, briefly by looking at Romans 9, verses 3 to 5, one of the great uh, pieces or, or descriptions of Israel's privileged status was that they were near unto God. They were the people close to God, literally, because God's presence was right there the Shekinah glory of God, the glory cloud, and all the blessings that it brings was within the nation of Israel, in the middle of the camp of Israel in the wilderness. Leviticus 9, Leviticus 10, Leviticus 26 are places where God describes the privileged status of Israel because God is nigh unto them. They are nigh unto God. The psalmist, I don't have this up here. Well, no, maybe Psalm 148. Well, it describes, it uses the word near. But there's several other places in the Psalms that describe how Israel was beneath God's wings. And it uses this as an idiom, uh, probably referring ultimately to the wilderness tabernacle and the, what was the centerpiece of furniture in the wilderness tabernacle? Ark of the Covenant. What was on top of the Ark of the Covenant? Two cherubim with their wings outspread, pointing one to the other. And the idea is it's, it's the wings that the Psalter refers to is, a, is an idiom to refer to the Ark of the Covenant and the immediate presence of God. Jesus in the New Testament will harness that same idiom and he will describe how he himself, he says, oh, remember he pauses, he's on his way into Jerusalem, the week of his death. On his way into Jerusalem, he pauses in Luke 19 and he weeps over the city. And he says something rather profound. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He says, I would have gathered you beneath my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And the picture is he's, he's harnessing this same idiom that we see throughout the Psalter. And the idea is being near to God, that God in his presence was a source of protection. Just like those little chicks flee beneath mama bird and they're under her wings and she provides protection and warmth and provision for them. That's the picture that God gave to ancient Israel of the blessedness of what it has to be nigh unto God. So all of the blessings and benefits of being nigh unto God, but also, as I point out here, being employed for his purposes. That because they were nigh unto God, the nation nigh unto God, 
They are described as being employed as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God used them in special ways to be the megaphone to the world about the reality of God. Like when Hezekiah prays and God comes and wipes out the Assyrian army. What happens next? Do you remember? People from every nation show up in Israel and they interview Hezekiah. And they say, what in the world happened? Right? This is this menace of the Middle East, the Assyrian nation, was wiping out nation after nation after nation. And then they come to Jerusalem and they get wiped out. What gives? What happened? And they interview. And Hezekiah gets to tell them, this is what our God did. What a privileged status that Israel had. That's the concept of being nigh unto God. And really... It has a, an overtone, as I call it, of a back to Eden sort of overtone. This concept that we, as being nigh unto God, right, all these promises in Leviticus and, you know, that I mentioned earlier in the previous slide, are all about this back to Eden sort of idea that he says, you can walk with me, be nigh me, just like it was back in the Garden of Eden. And yet what we're seeing here, what Paul is trying to get us to see, is this privileged status that Israel enjoyed for centuries is now available to us. We Gentile outsiders, we Gentile dogs, we get now to become Christian insiders. That's the idea. He's inviting Gentiles into that sort of restoration, just like God promised in the Old Testament. In fact, some scholars go so far as saying that Paul's lingo here in Ephesians 2 verse 13, when he says, but now in Christ you who are sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, that sometimes far off but now have been brought nigh, that you have peace with God, which is what he'll say in the next verse in verse 14. Many scholars believe that that's a direct allusion, if not quotation, from Isaiah 57 verse 19 which has very similar wording. And in that passage, it's, it's, it's a promise where God is promising the exiled Israelites that he would rescue them and return them to his presence in the promised land. What's so profound, and, and you're up on this, if you were part of our Isaiah class, then you know where I'm going with this. But in the original context of Isaiah, God not only promises redemption to Gentiles in places like Isaiah 56, but he also promises to deal with the real problem that the world has, the problem of sin. He promises to deal with it. That's Isaiah 53 or Isaiah 57. And he's going to do this. He's going to deal with the, with the sin problem of Israel and any Gentile who wants a part of it. He's going to deal with our sin problem through the enacting of the new covenant. He, he, he describes it as the everlasting covenant, this promise, this new relationship, this new arrangement that God is going to set up between himself and humanity known as the new covenant. Isaiah predicts it calling it that everlasting covenant or the covenant of peace, he will call it. In Isaiah 54 and elsewhere, it shows up a half a dozen times in the book of Isaiah. He foretells of this coming new covenant, the covenant of peace. And what's so profound is if Paul is leaning on Isaiah 57 in his language here in Ephesians chapter 2, then it has another profound implication, namely this, that Judaism contemporary to the New Testament. Remember, Paul, right? He was a hotshot rabbi. He knows Judaism and how it works in his day. But Judaism, contemporary to the New Testament time, used this language, the language of Isaiah 57, verse 19, to refer to Gentiles that were becoming proselytes to Judaism. They were converting to the worship of the one true living God. But what's so profound is Paul hijacks that language and he says, you're not converting to Judaism, you're converting to Christianity. Christianity is true Judaism. And he says, this is how you are brought nigh unto God. 
Judaism has it wrong. You're not brought nigh by all of your good deeds. All of the, you know, again, the, the legalism, the, 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 the legal standards by which you earn favor with God, that doesn't work. Rather, he says, you are brought nigh by the blood of Christ. And this, this idea, this thought flow that we see in Isaiah that's predicted and kind of climaxes there in Isaiah 57 verse 19, notice how it fits perfectly. This is the thought flow of what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 2, what we once were, but what we now are in Christ. Allow me to just for a moment con, you know, kind of uh, think about this in context of the entire Bible. This idea of, of being brought nigh or what you might label nearness theology. Zoom out and consider the Bible storyline for just a moment, particularly the beginning, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And notice that God's original intention in the Garden of Eden was to be with his people, that they would walk with him in the cool of the day. That's Genesis 3, verse 8. And yet all of this beautiful nearness relationship with God, proximity to God, fellowship with God, access to eternal life and all the blessings that being in God's presence bestows. All of that was ruptured because of sin. Genesis 3 verse 23 describes how they are then exiled from the Garden of Eden because of their sin. So the joy and provision that is found in the presence of Yahweh that is described in Genesis Chapter 3, verse 8, how he would come and walk with them in the cool of the day. That joy and provision that's found in Yahweh's presence was lost because disobedience that Adam and Eve participate in, disobedience always deceives and disappoints us, leaving us naked, ashamed, and fearful. Read Genesis 3, verses 8 to 11. What was the result of indulging in sin? Was it that they became as God? That they achieved deity and godhood like they were deceived into thinking? No, rather, they were naked and ashamed and fearful, running from God, having ruptured relationships with one another in creation. And yet it's in that very context, as we mentioned a moment ago, that God promised to deliver in Genesis 3 and verse 15. And yet God added to this promise throughout the pages of the Old Testament until we see in Isaiah it's one of the many places, but it's very climactic in Isaiah where he's climaxing that this promised deliverer will bring us near to God, completely restore our relationship with God. He will fix the tear, the rupture, the loss of relationship. He will bring reconciliation. In fact, this concept is really embedded in all the Old Testament covenant promises. Do this sometime. We don't have time this morning. But this climactic idea of restoration is the point of every covenant that God made with Israel. We see it in Exodus 29, Leviticus 26, Jeremiah 30, Ezekiel 36. We'll see it in Revelation 21, 22. We see this phrase that is, in, in, in essence, it's condensing all of these ideas into one phrase, that God is promising, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That God is working through the process of redemption He's doing something to restore us back to fellowship with himself. That once again, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. We will be back together. And yet Paul says that, and that's the whole idea of being brought nigh, being brought near by the blood of Christ. We're restored into fellowship, but we're brought near by the blood. Let's contemplate this, mo this for just a few moments. We don't need to recreate all the notes because this was something that we discovered and we looked at and unpacked a little bit back in chapter 1 where it says in verse seven, do you remember this? This is the hymn to the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in the second stanza of that hymn in chapter one, he says in verse seven, in whom we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of sins. Remember, we talked about how redemption is that idea of being purchased off the slave market, being set free, and the price that was paid is the blood of Christ. We, we unpack some of those ideas at that point, but notice how Paul revisits it. He once again brings up the blood of Christ. And what's so fascinating, what's so ironic is that this language sounds contradictory to many modern readers. Brought nigh by the blood. Right? Blood represents death and violence. And yet we're brought nigh, which is a picture of reconciliation and restoration in a relationship. Those, how do those two ideas go together? Well, it's an illusion. It's rooted. This language is rooted back in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Right? It's Levitical talk. Like I said, our nearness to God can only occur on the basis of a sacrifice. Remember our status as described at the beginning of this chapter, that we're lost in lust, allured by this age, we're condemned in our sin. That's who we are apart from Christ on our own. But to get from there to being nigh unto God, we have to approach God through a sacrifice. The offering that allows us to come near is the cross of Christ, the blood of Christ. Though we in of ourselves, on our own, are separated from God, we're lost, we're dead in sin, etc. Yet God offered cleansing by means of an innocent substitute. That's what we talked about back in chapter 1, verse 7. We're seeing it again here in chapter 2 and verse 13. The concept of a sacrifice was common in both Judaism and paganism. They understand that concept. Paul is, again, the Gentile readers, they would have understood what a sacrifice was. Paganism still had the idea of sacrifice, But what's profound is that here Paul takes the thought way further. Paul announces that the means by which one approaches God in the new covenant is through the sacrifice of Christ. That you don't come with a lamb. You no longer bring a lamb or a goat. Rather, we come by bowing the knee and trust in the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the lamb of God. As John the Baptist said in John chapter 1 and verse 29, he is the lamb of God that has come to take away the sins of the world. It is through the cross work of Christ, us, as I say, bowing the knee, submitting to the claims of Christ, trusting that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's done what he says he's done, that he can grant to us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This is how we come in the new covenant era. This is our means by which we are brought nigh. And yet what's so fascinating is that not only is this the mechanism by which we are brought nigh, the mechanism of reconciliation is the cross of Christ. We're brought nigh by the blood, but it also serves as our motivation. Embracing Christ as our lamb, our substitute, then leads to the fact that we ought then adore him for his selfless sacrifice. He was temporarily forsaken so that we might be brought near eternally. We'll get to it more later, but Paul is going to build upon this in Ephesians 5. Let me read this passage briefly. We'll see, again, so much of what Paul is going to build off of, and and when he gets to the practical ramifications of the Christian life in chapters 4, 5, and 6, so much of that he's going to anchor back to this theology back in Ephesians chapter 2. It's the heart of the book. But notice as he's describing, and, and, and it's kind of, I don't want to rip it out of context, but at the end of chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, and we'll get to it, I just, uh, I'm, I'm trying to write sermons out ahead. I just wrote my sermon for Ephesians 4 into chapter 5, and I got a lot to say. So, 
But, yeah, shocker, who said that? <laughs> but, chapter 4, verse 31, notice he's talking about relational nearness. Do you see this? He says, let all bitterness, that's chapter 4, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. He talks about all the things that will sabotage a relationship. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. You want to ruin your marriage? You want to ruin your relationship to your kids? You want to ruin your relationship with your parents or grandparents or boss? No problem. Let me tell you how to do it. Be bitter, angry, speak out against them, raise your voice. Be, as I said earlier in the Sunday School Hour, in the Greek, it's called idiotes, right? Translates into idiot, right? Be totally uncontrolled when it comes to your emotions and your speech and your words. Go ahead. That's how you sabotage relationships in your life. But how do you fix relationships in your life? Aren't you glad Paul doesn't stop there? He says, this is how you fix it. Verse 32, be kind one to another. Be tender-hearted. Be forgiving of one another. How can I possibly do all those things? That's a tall order, Paul. It's impossible. I can't do that. Well, Paul says, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. He goes on. Be followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us. Do you want to know how we learn to love? By looking to Christ who loved us. And he goes on. Verse 2, has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Notice how he anchors it back. He goes right back to the sacrifice of Christ. We're brought nigh by the blood of Christ. God reconciled us to himself through the blood of Christ. That is also the means by which we reconcile ourselves to one another. That's how we function in relationships as a Christian is we forgive because we've been forgiven. You want to withhold forgiveness? Go ahead. And Paul says, well, Jesus says elsewhere, he says that then forgiveness will be withheld from you. You want to be forgiven? Then turn around and be forgiving. How can you say, well, I want forgiveness, but I'm stingy giving it? That means you don't understand forgiveness. Look at where you came from. Look at what you've been forgiven of. So he says that's how we... Our learn, we learn forgiveness in our relationships. And he says, how do we learn love? Not just kind of reaction when people hurt me, I forgive them, but also how do I, in a, in a positive sense, act toward them? There's the love part. I walk in love as God loved us through Christ. How Christ came and he sacrificed himself willingly. He took the hit so that we could have forgiveness so that we could go free. Let me tell you, that's the secret to relationships. Learn to take the hit and give back forgiveness. Just love them. Are there times that people are unjust towards you? That a friend, a boss, co-worker, family member, spouse, child, whatever, says or does something to you that's totally wrong? Sure, that happens all the time. How do we respond? We Respond in kind. With bitterness and anger and wrath and clamor and evil speaking, I'll show them. And we sabotage the relationship. But if you can anchor yourself to the cause of Christ and what he has done, that he gave himself for me, 
He took the hit so I could go free. And I learned to mimic that. That's what the word in Ephesians 5.1 actually, he says, be followers of me. It's actually the word mimic. Where we get the English word mimic. Do it like God did it. Follow in his footsteps. And when we do that, oh, it's remarkable. It takes two to fight. And a fight in the relationship is not going to work if you just take the hit and give back love and forgiveness. And before long, you're not any fun to fight with. So they quit fighting with you. It's remarkable how that works. This is what is so important about, and I'm just trying to help you see the connection. Paul says, you have to understand who you were, where you came from, what God has done for you in the cross. We're brought nigh by the blood of Christ. He says, and if you get that down, now, Ephesians 4 and 5, you can learn how to live like it. But you know why so many people can't live like that? So many people cannot forgive, they cannot love, is because they've never nailed down the truths of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. They've never understood and stood in, in total adoration at who God is and what he's done for us in the cross. We actually think that we deserved it. We're self-righteous. We say, well, sure, God died for me because I'm a great guy. No, you missed the boat. You missed the point. What were you before, right? What did he do? Did you deserve it? No. Does that person in your life deserve forgiveness? No. You didn't deserve it either, but you got it, so you give it. And he anchors it all right back to the theology of how we were brought nigh by the blood of Christ. Do you see how that works? Isn't that profound? Can someone give me an amen? I mean, it's got kind of quiet in here. Okay, so this is what I want to do, all right? We're going to sing those realities. Daniel, where's my man? He's going to come up and play the piano for us. Now, I was warned earlier that I might be singing a solo if you don't know this song. So if you do know this song, sing loud. Otherwise, you are subject to my solo, okay? But we're to sing, Saved by the Blood of the Crucified One. How many of you know this song? Anyone know this song? Saved by the Blood of the Crucified One. Oh, okay, so it'll be a duet. You want to come on up here, Gloria? No, just kidding. I won't make you come up here. But stand up if you would. Let me walk you through the lyrics briefly. We're going to sing. Notice the, the beauty of this song. He says first, here's the first verse. Saved by the Blood of the Crucified One. Now ransom from sin and a new work begun. Sing praise to the Father and praise to the Son, saved by the blood of the crucified one. That's Ephesians 1, right? The role of the Father, role of the Son, what they've done for us. Then you get to the chorus. Saved, is, you have to hold the saved really long time, so I always substitute it because in the hymn, hymn book, there's like, it gives you a phrase underneath it. I always say, glory, I'm saved, right? Glory, I'm saved. Glory, I'm saved. My sins are all pardoned. My guilt is all gone. Glory, I'm saved. Glory, I'm saved. I'm saved by the blood of the crucified one. Second verse, saved by the blood of the crucified one, the angels rejoicing because it is done. A child of the Father. This is who we are in Christ. This is Ephesians stuff. This is Ephesians 2. Child of the Father, joint heir with the Son. Capital S. Jesus, the Son of God. I'm a child of the Father, joint heir with the Son, saved by the blood of the crucified one. Third verse, saved by the blood of the crucified one. The Father, he spake, and his will, it was done. The Father spake, he planned it, the Son carries it out. He says, I'll do it. That's Ephesians 1. Great price of my pardon. What did it cost God to bring reconciliation to us? We were brought nigh by the blood. It was his own precious Son. 
Great price of my pardon, his own precious son, saved by the blood of the crucified one. Final verse, saved by the blood of the crucified one. All hail to the Father, all hail to the Son, all hail to the Spirit, the great three in one. There's our Trinity reference. Why? Because we're saved by the blood of the crucified one. All right, can you sing that one with me? Daniel, give us our intro and let's take it away. By the blood of the crucified one, now ransomed from sin and a new work begun. Sing praise to the Father and praise to the Son. Saved by the blood of the crucified one. Glory, I'm saved. Glory, I'm saved. My sins are all pardoned. My guilt. Is all gone. Glory, I'm saved. Glory, I'm saved. I'm saved by the blood of the crucified one. Saved by the blood of the crucified one. The angels rejoicing because it is done. The child of the Father joined heir with the Son. Saved by the blood of the crucified one. Glory, I'm saved. Glory, I'm saved. My sins are all pardoned. My guilt is all gone. Glory, I'm saved. Glory, I'm saved. I'm saved by the blood of the crucified one. Saved. By the blood of the crucified one, the Father he spake, and it will, it was done. Great price of my pardon, his own precious Son. Saved by the blood of the crucified one. Glory, I'm saved. Glory, I'm saved. My sins are all pardoned, my guilt is all gone. Glory, I'm saved, glory, I'm saved. I'm saved by the blood of the crucified one. On the last, saved by the blood of the crucified one. All hail to the Father, all hail to the Son, all hail. Spirit, the great three in one, saved by the blood of the crucified one. Glory, I'm saved, glory, I'm saved. My sins are all pardoned, my guilt is all gone. Glory, I'm saved, glory, I'm saved. I'm saved by the blood of the crucified one. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Father, thank you that we have been gloriously saved by the blood of the crucified one. All hail to the Father, all hail to the Son, all hail to the Spirit, the great three in one, because we have been saved by the blood of the crucified one. Lord, might that be true of us here today. May we glory in the cross. May we recognize where we came from, who we were apart from Christ, and yet who we are 
because of the blood of Christ that has brought us nigh. Lord, may we never get over that. May it always humble us, motivate us, equip us, enable us to live differently, to mimic our Heavenly Father. Lord, we ask that you would teach us these things, that you would help us to live in like manner. I pray for those in the room, perhaps there's some that have never submitted to this reality. They've never trusted in the blood of the crucified one. They're still exhausting themselves, trying to earn righteousness, assuage your wrath on their own, only to discover that it, it never works. They always fail more than they succeed. And they're discouraged, depressed, and lost. Help them to see the hope that is in Christ. That being apart from Christ, apart from the covenant, apart from God, there is no hope. But in Christ, we have been brought nigh. In Christ, we have the hope, the joy of a restored relationship, the anticipation of glory to come. Father, help that to always equip us, to help us to live with joy and meaning, purpose, and grace in our relationships with others. We ask your blessing as we go our separate ways. Might you be magnified in through our lives with what is said and done. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.